it's very helpful to think of drug use in terms of spectrums, um, that, that it isn't um, just either you're addicted or you're not. Um, it's it, it's spectrum of ranging from completely non-problematic to very problematic use. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Fake news is a term that gets thrown around way too liberally these days, usually as a way to smear political opponents. But media does sometimes have a credibility problem, one that goes back as far as the days of yellow journalism. Journalists are only human, they make mistakes, and they often correct those mistakes. But when it comes to covering drugs, well, things often get hysterical, lack any scientific rigor or evidence, and the record rarely gets corrected. The media plays no small part in the war on drugs, which is really a war on people, and carries a lot of water for the prohibitionist movement, promotes stigma against people who use drugs, and unless it's cannabis or psychedelics, does little to promote the idea that drugs can be used responsibly. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. With me today are my Narcotica co-hosts Christopher Moraff and Zachary Siegel. We'll be talking with Will Godfrey, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Filter Magazine, a new online publication dedicated to drug education and harm reduction. It's in the hands of two very excellent editors, Helen Redman and Sashi Bonshaw. Will has spent a decade in journalism covering drugs from a compassionate perspective. In full disclosure, both Chris and I freelance for Filter. Will has also edited tons of Zach's work over the years, so we all do work together. However, when we started Narcotica a year ago, one of our grandiose ideas was to expand into a journalism outlet that focuses on drugs, nothing else, and comes at drug policy from a scientific, drug users are human perspective. Because that kind of publication really didn't exist. Vice covers drugs that way most of the time, The Fix does a decent job now and then, but otherwise there really wasn't this totally drug-devoted publication that I was hoping for until Filter Magazine came along in September 2018. So of course I wanted to work for Filter. Chris also has a column there where he's written about the freelancer effect related to drug dealing, testing street drugs for fentanyl, and more. Today we're going to talk about drug literacy and media and what makes Filter Magazine unique. Will, welcome to the program. Thank you, Troy. Pleasure to be with you. Let's give some listeners some background on you, Will. When did you begin writing about drugs? And, and, and Filter is also not the, the first website dedicated to drug use that you've started. Uh, you were with the Influence, Substance.com, and you were editor-in-chief of The Fix for a while. Yes, I have a, a sort of a long uh, record of, of drug-related and criminal uh, justice-related publications going back um, about 13 years now. Actually, the first publication I ever ran was um, in a prison in London where I worked in the education department and I co-founded and edited a publication that was written by and for prisoners. And so my, my first editorial team um, consisted of, of people um, who had been 
convicted of a, of a range of, of crimes. Um, a lot easier in some ways than working with New York journalists, I must say. But, um, but that was um, really what sparked my, my passion for this field, working with those people and, and, of course, covering subjects that always intersected with drugs and drug policy. And it was impossible being in the prison not to notice the, the huge um, disparities and human rights abuses that disproportionately um, affect people of colour and people from low-income backgrounds. And so I took it from there. And when I moved over to the States in 2010, I got a job working uh, with The Fix. I held a number of positions there and, and eventually became editor-in-chief where I, I tried to sort of move it more in a harm reduction direction. And after that, I had different opportunities to found harm reduction-oriented new sites, as you say, first um, substance.com and latterly The Influence. But Filter, for me, is something completely different because it's a non-profit organization. It's an organization that we created independently. We're not owned by anyone else. And so this is, I see it as a chance to fulfill the mission that I've been developing over many years uh, and to do it the way I and, and my colleagues want to. And so that's a, a great privilege. It's a responsibility I take seriously. And with many allies, we're very happy with the start we've made. Yeah. So like, I think the, the nonprofit model seems to be working out fairly decently. Like ad-driven journalism is totally dying and so, you know, all of us, we all have a career writing about drugs and we all cover it from a harm reduction perspective. And like, this is such a, a niche, but it's also totally 100% relevant right now. And because of the fervor around the opioid crisis, like we've all of a sudden become like mainstream, right? But the sort of old habits of the mainstream media toward covering drugs. Like I think like a lot of the problems and stigmas are coming out in, in a lot of the reporting and like filter so clearly avoids so many of the pitfalls and like we can just run down all these myths and, and bad things. But what, one thing I wanted to, to start off with you, Will, is like the first piece I ever read on Filter was by Tessie Castillo. And the headline is The Invisible Majority, People Whose Drug Use Is Not Problematic. And she profiles the lives of many, many drug users who are relatively functional and they describe how drugs actually help them. And they don't fit into the extreme stories of severe use that constantly dominates the media, whether it's like Intervention or New York Times Magazine profiling Kensington, where, where Chris lives. They called it like the Walmart of heroin and just like very much zoomed in on like the most problematic hardcore drug use. And like, like to me, this is like where Filter fundamentally departs from other journalism, which it does not have any implicit or explicit assumptions that like drugs and sex work and harm reduction are just like somehow deviant or these root evils. And can you sort of talk about that like divergent philosophy? Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was, I was going to. It's a very central part of our mission um, to approach drugs um, without the assumption that drugs are bad. There's, there's something that I think of as the clinician's error, whereby uh, people who work in healthcare have a distorted view of people's health because they come 
into contact with um, with people who you know disproportionately have health problems, and and you can extend that to to drugs and the addiction treatment industry, whereby people who work in those fields, because they come into contact with people experiencing problems related to drugs, um, might assume that 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 is the norm for people who use drugs. Of course, we know it isn't. There's, there's all kinds of data ranging from the, the UN office on, on the UNODC showing that, that, that actually an estimated 80 to 90% of people who use drugs um, do not do so in um, seriously problematic ways. And I think it's always um, so important to operate with an awareness of that. And of course, most media do not. And it's understandable because uh, disasters make news stories. They're, they're clicky. People want to read them. If, uh, if the only story is people are doing drugs and they're absolutely fine, it isn't really a story in, in many people's eyes. Um, and of course, there's also um, a lot of inherent prejudice uh, against drugs where, whereby it's sort of unacceptable um, for a lot of people to, to promote a message that doing drugs might be okay. It's, uh, it's something that, that I wrestle with, and thank you for your, your kind words about Filter's approach, but, but certainly we, we run lots of stories about overdose, about addiction, about um, the different problems that people experience related to drug use, and those, those stories are important. 70,000 people dying every year, every single one of them matters, and most of those deaths are completely preventable if only we had better drug policies. It's not something we're going to stop covering but we always seek to operate with an awareness that a lot of people have non-problematic or even beneficial relationships with drugs the tessie castillo piece you referenced uh, was actually um the billboard story that i chose um for our our launch when we first went live and and that was a very deliberate uh decision to to highlight that look it is true simultaneously that lots of people have severe problems related to drugs, but also that the vast majority of people who use drugs do so non-problematically, and we always need to approach it with that awareness. And so, uh, you know, mixed in with with stories about overdose and other severe problems, um, we do have uh, drug positive stories where people um, talk about experiences. There's there's one on, um, for example, LSD on our on our homepage at the moment, and how um, somebody took it and, and found that it actually was a seminal moment for them in coming to terms with their their sexuality and so it's you know if if we're going to cover this field accurately and rationally we always have to do so with an acknowledgement that this large population this um invisible majority as we called it on tessie's story uh is is there and that their stories matter too because ignoring those stories actually fuels the kind of prohibitionist and draconian policies that we all oppose. Will, I have to ask you about a tough subject um, that accompanied sort of the launch of Filter, and that is the controversy surrounding some of your funding sources. People like Kevin Sabat um, of Smart Approaches to Marijuana uh, took issue, or umbrage, I should say, with the fact that some of your funding comes from tobacco sources. And I wonder how that may have affected um, your, your attitude towards the launch or your confidence and, and what your response to that is. Um, transparency is obviously important. Um, it certainly hasn't affected my willingness to participate and be a columnist for the publication. I think I tweeted at the time, you know, if Donald Trump gave me money to write whatever I want, I would accept that too. Um, so, um, can you comment on that? 
Sure thing. I mean, as a, as a non-profit, um, we accept donations and grants from, from kind of three different pots, if you like, which is uh, private individuals who kindly support us, um, companies, commercial companies, um, and grant-making foundations. And we have sort of uh, broadly um, similar amounts of support from those, those three different pots. Um, we, yeah, we, of course, we, we talked about um, accepting tobacco funding um, or, or funding from tobacco companies. Um, the reason they wanted to fund us, um, I should point out, is that for many years in, 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 you know, in publications long before um, Filter, my colleagues and I have firmly supported tobacco harm reduction um, in the form of uh, vaping products, in the form of snus and other um, smokeless tobacco products. It's arguable that these harm reduction interventions have greater potential than any other in the world to save lives. I think, I think that's absolutely true given, um, for example, if you look at the numbers, um, about half a million uh, people in the US die every year from smoking-related uh, causes, a figure that, that dwarfs even the number um, who are losing their lives to, to drug overdose. And so um, it's, it absolutely makes sense to me that, that getting these products um, into the hands of more smokers is um, completely consistent with the, the ethics of harm reduction and, and morally incumbent uh, upon us to do so. Um, with that in mind, um, we, we have um, accepted um, funding from, from companies that manufacture vaping products. You know, we do have, we disclose it uh, fully on our site. We're not uh, ashamed of it. Um, we have a sort of a firewall in place and a, and a policy stated on our website. None of the companies or indeed other individuals or, or foundations that support us have any say in our editorial decisions. Um, and our, you know, the editorial decisions are consistent with, with what we've done before. And we believe that the work that we do stands on its own feet to be to be seen as ethical and and in line with uh, saving lives, and that's um, that's something we're comfortable with. Um, we are aware, of course, that some people might write off um, anything we publish uh, because of the sources of of some of our funding, um, and that's just that's a price that we have to pay for for existing and for operating in this way. Uh, I'll note that um, the, the biggest critics of this sort of funding have been people like Kevin Sabat and his former colleagues at the ONDCP. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that's, that tells you something. You know, my, my response to anybody who is critical um, of, of that aspect of things would be, well, look at the work and argue with the work if you disagree with it. I think it, it, it stands up and uh, I'm, I'm proud of it and uh, I, don't, I don't feel ethically conflicted. I think that the work we're doing is, is helpful and, um, and, and, as I say, in the business of promoting public health and saving lives. On the note of, of Kevin Sabat, hey, Chris, remember when you reported the piece for the Daily Beast about DuPont, how he was like, basically a rule maker in the federal government that was basically saying, hey, everyone needs to be drug tested. And this guy like had a bunch of stake in drug testing companies. Yeah. And like, and, and like Sabat was, was like going up to bat for this guy on Twitter 
when that piece came out, just be like, oh, but like he he divested, like he doesn't have any stake in that anymore. And like, so just like it, it, it's rich when when like something like, okay, a, a vaping company, vaping products, like whatever, like it, it's not like, you know, Will, you're writing press releases for the newest like jewel pods or something like that. Like, like, it, like it's, it's not like you're promoting products, but like people like Sabat and, and DuPont, like they actively take a lot of money from, from the, the law enforcement industry, no doubt. And they're funded interests. And of course, they're interested in enforcing laws which prohibit cannabis. <laughs> and, and I should point out that Sebat, um, uh, who I was, I was disappointed, actually, not to get a chance to meet him at the, um, at the Penn uh, conference that was rescheduled. He was supposed to be there. They sent somebody in instead. Um, you know, I, I'm always interested in talking to the, you know, quote unquote opposition. I think in most situations, uh, we all probably have more in common than we have indifference. And, and um, I think that's important, you know, to meet people face to face and talk. But, you know, Kevin was speaking from a position of a, of a person who um, is, uh, you know, part of an organization in Florida uh, called Drug Policy Institute. Um, it's out of, um, I don't want to get the wrong university, so I'm not going to name it. You can look it up, on which DuPont is a senior advisor and they've been completely untransparent about where their money comes from uh and yet they um have strong influence on florida politics including pam bondi's um you know uh pushes to to, to crack down uh well it's just i think they launched in 2012 but they were trying to get you know uh the welfare testing uh drug testing for welfare recipients where you know here in philadelphia we have a bill that's trying to unwind that even for parolees, you know? So, um, you know, it's a very, it's, it, Kevin is, is part of the uh, small nucleus of the last of the, of the drug war hawks, you know, so to speak. Um, and he wasn't completely transparent himself, even in his criticism. <laughs> yeah, I will, I mean, I will say, you know, everything that you, you say about the funding sources of those people I, is, is, is true. Um, on the other hand, you know, my, my, defense of our funding sources is not to point at other people and say um hey well they're they're doing even worse things because i don't think that would be a very <laughs> i think it's more that it's just it's it's telling when people want to um discredit tobacco harm reduction articles based on the sources of their funding rather than um and and those it's not specific funding for those articles i should i should add um rather than actually engage with the content and and explain why they think that products that are safer than cigarettes by orders of magnitude should be harder to get hold of than cigarettes. Uh, I, would, I would love somebody to explain that to me, and I've never heard a convincing answer. And this is an argument that's been made around even, even drug decriminalization, hard drug decriminalization, and I think it applies to tobacco products. Um, as, a, as a smoker off and on myself throughout my life, um, you know, the powers that be, be it the tobacco companies, the lobbying firms, the tax law has made it illegal to go buy one cigarette. Um, and much like uh, the drug culture, if you're going to risk going into an illicit market where you um, risk robbery, um, assault, arrest, uh, you're going to buy as much as you can possibly afford. You're not just going to, you know, so we incentivize, you know, if I wanted to have one cigarette, um, it was, I was, I was required to buy 20. 
Um, and that it incentivizes, you know, overconsumption <laughs> in a way, um, it, you know, the way that our policies are set up. And I, and I think that so much of the discussions that we have really, really circle back to policy decisions that are, that, that, that counteract the stated goals um, that many policymakers, you know, spin in their rhetoric. Uh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. Let's talk about drug literacy and, and media. Um, as, as Zach mentioned, you know, the opioid crisis or the overdose crisis has really brought drug use to the mainstream. It's a thing that you cover every once in a while when there's a juicy story of a drug bust or a string of overdoses or something. Um, but a lot of legacy media, especially broadcast media, don't really get nuance of covering drugs. Um, I, I want to go through some examples. Um, so some of my, one of the major problems is, you know, journalists will only talk to cops. Um, and I found in my own reporting, it's really effective if you're covering a drug and you literally just talk to drug users, ask them why they actually are using drugs and you get so much more out of it that way. But that's something that uh, a lot of journalists ignore or they only talk to people that are in, in so-called recovery that have, you know, ruined their lives and, and drugs were a part of that and they've gotten through the other side and now they only have, you know, horror stories to tell. Uh, they, so what, what are some other things that uh, journalists really get wrong when it comes to drug literacy? Uh, well, I don't know how long we've uh, got today, but I, I can make a, a, a start on, on a few of them. I think that there's a, that authorities should have the right to determine what people put into their own bodies. That's, that's one of them. There's um, the assumption that drugs are bad and that it's natural for them to be illegal, ignoring the fact that uh, prohibition is, as we know, a, a fairly modern invention and hopefully that won't be around for, for too much longer. Um, there are things like um, the choice to continually cover um, seizures of large quantities of illicit drugs without um, actually dwelling on the consequences, if any, of doing so. I, th I think it should be mandatory as a journalist, if you're reporting on a seizure, to say, well, what effect will this have on the illicit drug market? We know that it doesn't make drugs go away, but as Chris has brilliantly explained on Filter, um, it does um, create sort of power vacuums and, and promote instability and, and violence uh, within illicit markets. Uh, so there's, there's all of that stuff, the sort of the faulty assumptions and the, and the spreading of myths. And of course, there's a lot of uh, prejudice and, and stigma as well. And some of it subtle and some of it not subtle that you've got, you've got racism um, all over the place. And, and particularly, for example, in the portrayals of uh, drug dealers and, and innocent white victims. Um, Tessie Castillo has written another great piece uh, for Filter um, about why drug dealers are the wrong people to blame for the crisis. And, and it all feeds into um, the portrayal of um, you know, of, of typically people of color as sort of predatory or um, there to get rich when, when really most street level drug dealers, as, as Chris has described in his reporting on Philly, uh, don't make very much money at all and often use drugs themselves and are just trying to get by uh, with, with limited um, alternative opportunities. Um, you've got gender stigma, you've got, um, you know, prejudice against, against mothers, particularly 
particularly who who use drugs. You've got um, prejudice against um, uh, people from from low income backgrounds. You've got prejudice against drug users. You've got uh, the framing of harm reduction as a kind of a fringe um, motive still uh, a lot of the time even though it's uh, accepted in in many other places around the world as a, as a gold standard and it has so much um, you know decades of, of evidence supporting it and and I do think that that's um, I have to say a, you know a, a particularly American problem in the in in, in the certainly in the Western world um, and, and sort of linked into um, you know going back to the temperance movement and the formation of um, AA and and this idea that um, the the only acceptable um, response to um, potentially problematic drug use is to be abstinent um, and and I think that 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 still lingers um, in the US to an extent that that makes it particularly difficult here uh, for people to get their their heads around harm reduction. Um, I, I yeah, and I should say because I've I've been accused uh, many times in the past of being anti-abstinence. I'm, I'm absolutely not. Uh, I have many um, close friends and colleagues who are abstinent from um, particular drugs or from, um, I won't say all drugs because I don't know many people who don't do caffeine, but um, but from, you know, broadly um, abstinent. And, uh, and, that, and that's great. People have to make uh, their own choices and do what works for them. Uh, what I am against is uh, abstinence-only attitudes, the idea that, that you're not clean, that you're not uh, in recovery, um, that uh, that you haven't um, addressed your issues and uh, and addictions uh, unless you're abstinent. I think that that's uh, very harmful in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I, I think your point about highlighting things that are like uniquely American is, is very much on point. And the the paradox that I always run into is like. Americans are obsessed about freedom and they equate their freedom with freedom to consume or what they buy, like, like freedom to own, carry and buy and sell weapons. Like, like, like these are key freedoms for, for America. And, and so when, when it comes to like, uh, I don't know, a, attacks on soda or like Michael Bloomberg in New York, he, he tried to ban um, cups of soda bigger than 16 ounces or some shit. I don't know what happened, but it failed spectacularly because everybody loves to consume things that are, that they know are bad for them and they want the freedom to fucking do it. But on the other hand, and this is where we get into like the temperance movement and cannabis prohibition and all these other um, things that Americans are prohibited from consuming is you need a moral argument. You need an argument that by consuming this, you're going to harm people, people other than the user. It's, it's, ne it's never about protecting the safety and health and lives of end users. It's always like, if you drink, you're going to drive and kill my family. So like, that's an obvious moral bad, right? For the, for, for the public. But if you use heroin, they need to come up with a, with a moral argument that's like a danger to the rest of us. And so this is where we get into just insanely um, inflated moral panics that are constantly following drugs. And that to me is like where, what you, is so uniquely American about prohibition. Agreed. And I, and I think that an important aspect of this is also um, conceptions of 
of what addiction is. Um, I think it's, you know, in, in incredibly instructive to remind ourselves that people become addicted to all kinds of experiences that don't involve drugs, um, gambling, sex, uh, shopping, um, all, all kinds of things. And what does that tell us? It, it tells us, I think, that um, while, you know, certain drugs are very pleasurable or comforting and, and perhaps um, might incline people more to develop compulsive relationships with them. It also uh, it says that, that addiction is not something that is inherent to the properties of drugs. It's rather about people's relationships with, with their lives and their psychosocial circumstances. And, um, you know, in a, in a country where there is a great deal of poverty, where there is a great deal of inequality, where there is a great deal um, of, of, of racism and, and other social issues. Um, you know, my, my feeling about it is that if it weren't opioids or if it weren't some other drug, uh, it would be something else because people develop compulsive relationships uh, as a way of, um, of, of comforting themselves against um, the hardships and, and the rawness of life. And I think it's, it's, it's very important to to remember that when we're talking about banning soda or banning this and that um you know firstly we know that on a practical level uh, prohibition doesn't work uh, but also um it, it's like well do you really think you're going to solve addiction by taking away one particular thing um it's it, it's actually far more deeply rooted than that and i think that's important to remember there would be a huge black market for Coca-Cola. Like people would like mix up and concoct the most fucked up formulas to peddle Coca-Cola. <laughs> you can't, you can't well, ban it. <laughs> and, and certainly with, um, with, with Diet Coke, I would be a, a frequent customer of, of, of that market. And uh, yeah, yeah, and it would just make it more, more dangerous because you'd get sort of Diet Coke hooch and... Uh, and There's and already so many fucked up chemicals in that. Who knows? Who knows what the... The, the moonshine version of, of Diet Coke would, would... Right, maybe it would get safer, I don't know. And, and I'd like to point out that even the Taliban has been unable to keep cigarettes um, from, you know, coming into their territory. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and um, ISIS as particularly, um, you know, went on a, a, you know, rampant anti-smoking campaign where um, I'm sure the punishments were, were pretty severe. And even that wasn't enough. Um, and, but looping back to the um, to what you said, Will, um, we, we have this image of uh, either you know you're either addicted or you're clean, right? So, and and I think of a lot of that is a function of what was a necessary step in the direction of progressive drug policy, and that was the acceptance of um, of of substance abuse disorder as a disease. However, um, in taking out all willpower and all discipline and all self-control from the argument, you've sort of made it, um, you've created, uh, you know, an environment in which, uh, you know, a disease must be cured. There is no, um, well, I'd just like to have like a little bit of cancer. So I think the messaging around that as a progression, it has certainly, you know, helped evolve the discussion in a way that provides more compassion for drug users and, and has re relieved some of the stigma. It's also, it's swung the pendulum a bit too far the other way. And, um, and, and it's left no room for healthy 
drug use. And I'd like to point out regularly that we know what healthy alcohol use looks like versus unhealthy alcohol use. We don't have that dialogue around uh, drugs um, because we consider substance abuse um, or substance use as, as in any sense of the, you know, a, a problematic on its face. Um, and so, and you know, if you'd like to respond to that or if you have anything to add. Well, great. just one thing, like I know for a fact that so many journalists in New York regularly do cocaine or they take speed or amphetamine or some other thing. No. Like, like there is totally a, right. Like, like people in media are so fucked up all the time. I swear. But like the, like there's totally, um, an experience that a lot of people have around a lot of drugs that aren't, you know, problematic, but even in their own experience, like that doesn't filter into the way it gets reported. Like it's there, like that's why filter I think is, is doing such an incredible thing because it, it is cutting through so much of the noise that, and like just how, like having an editor, not having to fight with an editor about, like a, a certain implicit assumptions is already like so much stress off the back of anyone who's reporting about uh, drugs. Um, well, thank you. I, I try not to fight too much with my contributors, although perhaps uh, Chris and Troy will, will tell you otherwise, but um, that, yeah, I mean a lot to unpack in what you and Chris just said. I, I, I agree with Chris that, um, that the disease model of addiction is really a double-edged sword. You can, you can understand that, that with many people it's coming from uh, a place of compassion. Um, but I think that there is research as well that shows that, um, you know, that medicalizing conditions does in itself um, uh, promote stigma. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, you can see why the disease model is very attractive to a lot of people as well because if you, if you can say well my addiction it's 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 a disease it's an external thing for which i have um zero control um it that you know it, it does sort of excuse one from from responsibility um i think a, a sort of a more realistic way of looking at it is that that uh, you know addiction is an experience that is bound up with aspects of one's life and um, you know, and requires working on and improving different different aspects of, of one life that of one's life that, that people do have um, agency, even even though it is an extremely uh, you know difficult and, and and horrible thing to go through at the, at the same time. But I, I think um, as you, you both were alluding to, it's it's very helpful to think of drug use in terms of spectrums um, that that it isn't. Um, just either you're addicted or you're not. Um, it's it, it's a spectrum of ranging from completely non-problematic to very problematic use. And um, yeah, it's it's just sort of helpful to, to to think of it that way. For example, while we suffer tens of thousands of opioid-related deaths every year, tens of millions of Americans use those drugs every year and so we you know it's very serious the problems that we're experiencing and yet it is only a fraction of the whole and and you know to give a personal example of spectrums of use um when i had surgery a few years back i was prescribed opioids uh, and i took them and i enjoyed them greatly i thought it was a, a wonderful feeling but then when i ran out of my prescription I, I stopped using them so is that problematic I, I I don't think so but there are so many different degrees of of use and and it's not just about the quantity that you use it's about how
how you use it and the effect it has on you. And it's, it's just much more complicated than either saying, well, you have a problem or you don't. Um, that's a really good point. Uh, what I'd like to ask next is what kind of uh, drug literacy we'd like to see from publications? What, wh how would we like to see drug use covered in the mainstream media? Because it gets it wrong so often. What kind of world do we want to have? I mean, there are, there are a lot of different answers to that and, um, you know, ranging from um, coverage that is not um, prejudiced and, and, and stigmatizing um, to coverage that... Um, that sort of front loads the experience of, pe of people who actually use drugs, as, as you referenced earlier. Um, I think, you know, one, one aspect of that and uh, something I would like to see more of, although I understand why we don't, is that we have lots of uh, well-known figures, celebrities coming out and saying, well, I, I previously had a problem with drugs, but now I no longer use them. We have very few people, for understandable reasons, coming out and saying, I currently use um, illicit drugs, whether problematically or non-problematically. Of course, that makes sense because there are punitive consequences for, for admitting uh, drug use, um, you know, all kinds of negative uh, implications for people. But I think that, that those, um, you know, spokespeople, if they are in a position to come out, and I'm thinking, for example, now of, um, of Karl Hart, who has um, been open um, in various articles, including one for one of my former publications um, about his use, uh, non-problematic use of illegal drugs. Um, for example, um, crystal meth, he, he, he wrote a piece about how he, he tried that. I think it's, you know, and, and sort of feeding into the idea of portraying the whole of drug use and not just the, the most traumatic and, um, and, and damaging forms of drug use. I, I think that's a, that's a key part. Um, I also think that, um, you know, perspective is needed rather than just sort of blindly um, parroting law enforcement sources or reporting on, on drug seizures. Um, I think it is incumbent on journalists who want to cover this seriously and well to step back and look at the bigger picture, look at the, um, the limited time period for which we've had prohibition and, and what came before it and why the world didn't end then um, and and to look at um, consequences of, of actions as we as we previously referenced you know that, that clamping down and, and locking up um, one particular group of drug dealers um, is not going to stop the supply of illicit drugs it's going to just uh, displace it and and probably cause turmoil and violence um, it's about looking at consequences for example the iron law of prohibition whereby um, suppliers are incentivized to uh, produce um, you know, more potent forms of drugs um, if they're doing so in uh, in an illegal market. Um, so I think that um, that sort of looking at the bigger picture, front-loading um, directly impacted people and cutting out all the prejudice and leaning on science and and the efficacy of harm reduction, I think that those things would obviously be a good start. We could We could go on a lot more. One reason why I think Filter is successful on that front in ways that legacy publications aren't is just by looking at the bylines, like looking at who filter publishes. Like I recognize so many names from the harm reduction community. And a lot of these people are sources who have come to me with stories or people I've interviewed. Like I've no, I know a lot of them and it's not that like they don't have the writing skills or the expertise or the talent to get an op-ed in the New York Times or the Atlantic or whatever. 
it's they're, they're sort of like a gatekeeper problem where they're not really going to, I don't know, like Kat Humphrey's talking about why we need to care for injection wounds or why we need to look at benzodiazepines in conjunction with opioids. People like Kat, I see as experts in their field, and yet I don't see them getting column inches in the publications like like the Times, like I was mentioning. And so I really see filters like providing a space for, for people who I consider the experts, but in the sort of status of information, they're not being interviewed or they're not getting op-eds like out there. So like, I think it's, it's about who Filter is publishing. That's, that's exactly how um, I see Filter as well, as a, as a place where um, people whose voices aren't necessarily amplified elsewhere can be amplified. Um, I must say I'm just continually humbled and grateful by just the resources that there are in this field in terms of extraordinary people. Um, you're talking about um, experts with, with deep academic knowledge, um, people um, like Kat, who you mentioned, who are, who are just doing this work uh, on the front lines and, and, and doing amazing work. Um, you're talking about um, marginalized and, and directly impacted people whose voices aren't heard enough elsewhere. And really all I'm doing as the editor-in-chief is is sort of surfing on these other people's talent and expertise and bravery. And, um, and, and it's those people who make filter what it is. And I'm just extremely grateful um, that, that there are so many inspiring folks. And, and so much of it has to do with sheer resources. Um, this is just not a topic. The media business has changed so much that, um, publications are, are pushing out, you know, for, you know, 700 word pieces a day, um, when to really tell the story of the overdose crisis, um, uh, you need to be out there immersed and, and, and frankly, there's, it's, it's really impossible to do without, uh, I believe nonprofit uh, and, and foundational philanthropic resources these days. It's not a viable business model. People want the sensationalism. We talked about, we focus on the worst of the worst. Well, that's because it's not really, I've gone and tested the political consultant's cocaine, you know, his eight ball, and it's not really exciting to go and see a nice house with a big TV and a guy that just snorts a little coke. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's not going to sell. That's not selling the message, right? So um, it, so much of what we do is media criticism, and, and the media business has changed so much that even real wars, um, we don't have foreign bureaus anymore. You know, we, we've, we've, uh, we've left that to people uh, of their own devices. Um, I spent the day with a producer yesterday that's doing a documentary on, on his own dime. I mean, so any criticism that comes back of where any money's coming from, you know, I, I'd, I'd happily take money from anyone that would give me the, the freedom to correctly cover this um, because it's just resources is, is, is such a huge component of this. And so, you know, I hope you'll be around for a long time. Well, I hope Filter will be around for a long time um, because it's, it's, it's much needed. And as everyone else has pointed out, you've, you've, um, you've managed to create an, an amazing stable of writers that are putting out some really great work. Um, you'll have a piece from me today. Um, <laughs> are you late on deadline, Chris? 
Yeah, I've, I've been, yes. Um, but I've also been, you know, talking to the detectives and DAs and all kinds of crazy other stuff. So, um, Well, I don't want to give Chris a hard time because his stuff is always is always worth waiting for and 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 the on the ground coverage that that he does is is such an important element of this and what you're saying chris about resources is is true and another resource i want to mention is is our readership um people who are deeply committed to these subjects who really are knowledgeable about them uh, and care about them and and who give us the space and the audience to cover um some of these subjects in depth that aren't getting out there uh, in in traditional media and so that's that's very important too not to be like the wet blanket right but you know uh, how much are we preaching to the choir right so you know i just i just did a panel at penn and everybody there was pretty much on the same page i don't think anybody learned anything terribly new i think everybody's mind was kind of made up or they wouldn't have been there it's a self-selecting audience to some extent um how do we get to the next how do we get the message to the masses, you know, um, and actually change the messaging rather than just um, sort of, you know, write the same story a different way that our colleagues are going to read and the harm reduction community will read and agree with. Um, and we all know that already, you know. Um, so that's been a conundrum of mine. Um, I've tried to use Twitter um, to that to that extent to the extent I can do that, but even that is self-selecting in a way. You know, um, I, I wonder what you what you um, how you would uh, answer that. You know, it's a very good question, and if I knew a simple answer, then um, well, I would be a happy man. But um, I, I will say that that I've seen signs of it coming. Um, it's something that we're very conscious of at at Filter is sort of writing to uh, a specialised audience, but also um, mixing that in with stories that are accessible that don't assume that everybody knows what harm reduction is or or why it works. It's about um, tackling the mainstream subjects. I don't know, off the top of my head, we, there was one article about Lindsay Lohan that, um, that sort of blew up on Google, and I'm sure that the people reading it weren't um, you know, committed harm reductionists, but it, it's about giving people a way in um, by talking about subjects that they recognize and, um, and, and sort of allowing um, the, sort of the ideas of filter to, to sort of seep through by osmosis in some cases. And I've seen, so yes, we have a, a core um, audience of, of committed activists and experts in, in, in harm reduction and people who are knowledgeable about it for other reasons. Um, but I've also noticed um, social media sharing from people across the political spectrum. And, you know, something that gives me more pleasure than anything else doing this job is when I hear from people who didn't originally agree with us and who tell us that they've actually been rethinking their positions. Um, there's um, one one woman I, I know socially who is uh, a Republican from the Midwest and, and quite sort of traditional conservative in some ways. And, and, and she told me that um, she read one of our articles about sex work and after doing so, really rethought her position on that and, and now favours uh, decriminalisation where previously she didn't. And, and, it's, and, and I get emails from people I've never met or heard of before sometimes telling me similar things and not as many as, as, as I would like, but it's, it's a sign to me that, that, we're, that we're beginning uh, to make progress in, in fulfilling our mission um, by, by reaching people who didn't already agree with this and, and hearing that they now do. Uh, there, I don't think there is any element of my job um, which gives me more pleasure and satisfaction than that. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like reaching 
audiences outside of the proverbial choir, it's, I don't know, it, like to me, like I've written the same story about a dozen times. Like the, the story is always, there is an overdose crisis. These medications reduce mortality rates hugely. And why aren't we using them? Like, like to me, that's a story I'm dedicated to writing over and over and over again. And it's been written not just by me, but by a ton of people. And it takes, I think, all of us like working together to message consistently and repeatedly and clearly. And that's like just sort of the grinding and grueling, unglamorous job of, of doing this kind of work. And, and just, I think, uh, a couple days ago, like the New York Times editorial board wrote, want to reduce opioid deaths, question mark get people the medications they need. And so we see this like messaging filter into the mainstream because I wrote that exact piece in Slate, like, I don't know, four years ago. So it's, it's, it's over time, I see all the things we're talking about slowly leak into what the mainstream discourse is. And I think it's, it's, it's not happening overnight, but there is, an, there is a huge effect when you have people like Maya Solovitz and the Drug Policy Alliance and Filter and Herman Lopez at Vox and just people who are day in, day out doing the work. And I think that's the, that's the commitment that this kind of movement needs. I, I agree. And, and it is daunting and it does some, sometimes seem like we're banging our heads against a brick wall. But then, you know, if I step back and look, even the time that I've been covering this field in the past 10 years, the policy changes that we've seen are absolutely extraordinary. And while public opinion may seem entrenched, I think when, when you reach a tipping point, it can change very quickly, as we've seen with, with cannabis and, and with other, um, you know, Good Samaritan laws, naloxone distribution, all kinds of other um, positive steps forward and so um we're not going to give up and the comforting thing is that we're not doing it alone we have so many allies for you know narcotica and um some of these amazing organizations like drug policy alliance harm reduction coalition and and many others um in new york and around the country and around the world um and and there is um a group of committed journalists who are playing a very important part in that um it is um seeping through and and when you know that you're right about something then it is just a matter of time the trouble is we by taking time we all know that um suffering and death and mass incarceration is is going on in the meantime and so there's there's urgency but i have no doubt that we will will get there because it's just ultimately what makes sense what is in the what what, is it, what do you have planned for the future for filter i know you have done some video work a little bit uh, but talk to us about what your plans are for the next year or so. Well, we have all kinds of plans. I have, I have so many um, articles on my slate. I couldn't even tell you all about them. But, um, you know, a couple that spring to mind is a, is a really in-depth report about harm reduction in women and, the, um, you know, the, um, the issues, the, the gender-specific around harm reduction delivery. Um, we have somebody um, flying out to Arizona to visit a, a really innovative 24-7 methadone clinic and, and report on that. We have all kinds of, you know, I like doing sort of these research projects. We did a big one on um, the 
position of district attorneys all over the country on, on drug policy and another one on um, naloxone contributions, which insanely are still happening uh, all over the country. So there'll be more of those. Uh, we'll keep um, doing the primarily um, written content and, and, and building up our audience and our, and our collaborations in, in that way. Um, we will be producing more video. And, and I think that, you know, other than just sort of growing as a journalistic website, um, I think probably in the, in, the, in the future of Filter, it'll be more of a kind of an all-purpose harm reduction hub providing or, or sort of at least linking to, um, to services. Perhaps, you know, there will be more media diversity, not, not so um, heavily predominantly written content and so we'll um we'll, we'll expand in size but we'll also expand in in vision that's that's my hope for it long live filter as as we should all be saying <laughs> um yeah i think this is a good place to wrap up will um thank you so much for for your time and for dedicating your career to this because there's a million other things someone like you could be doing and it's clear reading the influence and substance and now filter that you just really give a shit about people who are fighting for their lives. Um, well, well I do. And, and thank you for having me on the show. I really in turn admire the work that the three of you are doing. Um, and if you'll forgive me a very shameless um, plug, just to sort of yes, mention plug away. <laughs> um, filtermag.org is, is where um, your listeners um, should come to, to check out the work that we're doing and uh, we hope they'll stay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Tell a friend about us. Most podcasts become popular via word of mouth, or give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash narcotica where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us pay our bills a little bit. We are so grateful for the people that make this program possible. We want to stay ad-free, and you guys help us do that. Thank you so much. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about using DXM to time travel, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.